Good stuff. Well, hey, let's pray as we come to God's word. We're going to jump right back into John's gospel where we left off last week. And so uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that we can uh, come uh, come to your word and see what happened 2,000 years ago, all that you accomplished to purchase our salvation. And Lord Jesus, this morning we exalt you. We pray that you would be exalted to the highest place in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, that every mind here would be turned towards Jesus, that every heart would be turned towards Jesus, that, um, that Jesus, as you are lifted up this morning, that your Father would be glorified and, and that our hearts would be turned towards you. And so we just ask uh, your Spirit's blessing upon the word this morning as, as we break bread in Jesus' name. Amen. Sweet, yeah, so we're in John's gospel here, picking up where we left off last week with the arrest and uh, the trial of Jesus. And in the early part of John chapter 18, what we looked at was the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, the betrayal by Judas, uh, Peter's denial of Jesus, and, and then the Jewish religious trial of Jesus. And when, we, uh, when you actually look at all of the Gospels accounts together, you zoom out and kind of comprehensively put all of the Gospel accounts together of this time one of the things that you see is, is that there was three stages to Jesus' Jewish trial. The first stage was what we saw last week, part of what we saw last week, because John doesn't record all of these details. He gives us little windows of insight into what happened that evening. But the first stage was this, that Jesus was taken from the garden to the home of Annas, who was uh, the father-in-law of the high priest. And there Jesus was interrogated before the second stage of his Jewish religious trial took place. And that was this, that he was then uh, tried before the high priest Annas. And and there with Annas were various members of the Sanhedrin, I guess whoever they could get together in the middle of the night uh, for this kangaroo court. And then after that part of the trial, because, because... um, before Annas, Jesus confessed that he was the Christ. And so they had, they had uh, called that blasphemy. And so according to the law, Jesus was uh, worthy of dying. And so uh, they had to take things further. But, but part of Jewish law was this, is that a trial could not take place under the cover of darkness and in night. So what they did was they waited until the wee hours of the morning. And then the third stage of the religious trial took place when the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel together against Jesus and they determined to put him to death. And so as we're going through John's gospel, and as we come to this part of the text, we see three stages to the Jewish religious trial. And so Jesus is now going to be brought to Pilate and they're going to have like a Roman trial, like a civil trial. And... It also has three stages to it, which is kind of interesting. You know, first Jesus, as we're going to see, is taken to to Pilate, the Roman governor. And then the second stage is this. Pilate's going to find out that Jesus is a Galilean. John doesn't tell tell us these details. But Pilate finds out Jesus is a Galilean, and he says, well, that's not my jurisdiction. That, That belongs to Herod the Tetrarch. So he sends Jesus off to Herod. And then the third stage involves Jesus being sent back and condemned uh, by Pilate. And so, you know, John's gospel doesn't recount necessarily all of 
these details. And I, I was thinking about this. I think it's likely because John's gospel is the last of the four gospels that were written. You know, we know that John was, of the, of the apostles, John was the only one who died of old age by natural causes. He lived well into his 90s. And so uh, John's gospel is actually written around the year AD 85, which is 50 years after all of these events going on. Like, it's hard to imagine that. Think about this. Jerusalem has been destroyed. The, the temple has been destroyed in 70 AD. And it's 15 years after that that John sits down and writes his gospel. And he was a firsthand witness of these things, present for these things. And so John's account, I think, gives more attention to the details that would matter to a Roman, to a citizen of the Roman Empire. And that would be the trial before, before Pilate, the Roman governor. And, and that, those details are of greatest you know, interest and cultural importance at the time when John writes. And so he's concerned about what happens before Pilate. And so John gives a lot of attention to what happens before Pilate. So let's check it out. In verse 28 of chapter 18. <clears throat> then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now the governor's headquarters, just kind of some historical background and understanding of what's going on here. The governor's headquarters in Jerusalem were on the northwest end of the Temple Mount. And it was known as, the governor's quarters was known as the Hall of Judgment or it was known as Antonio's Fortress. Herod the Great had built it. It had been named after the Roman general Mark Antony, Antonio's Fortress. And, you know, as we know from history, this, this Roman province of Palestine where Jerusalem was had been generally just a total thorn in the side for Rome, the, the Jews. It had been problematic and rebellious against Roman rule. And so the Romans had done this. They had divided the province of Palestine into four sections and they had placed a tetriarch to rule over each one of these quarters of the province. And originally the man who was first put in, in power in Jerusalem was a man by the name of Herod Archelaus. And, and the Jews had rebelled against him. They had appealed against him to Rome. And so Rome's answer was this. Rome sent a man that we read about here by the name of Pontius Pilate. And Pilate is an interesting character because the history on Pilate is this, that Pilate was actually born a slave. He was born into a house as a slave but through marriage, through manipulation, through maneuvering, through relationships, and being good at politics, uh, Pilate had risen through the ranks until finally he was appointed this position and sent from Rome to Palestine to be the governor of Jerusalem. Isn't that crazy? In this area. This, so this guy's a slave. This is a man who knows how to maneuver politically. And his headquarters were actually not, the, the Roman headquarters were actually not in Jerusalem. They were in Caesarea on the coast of, of the sea. Remember when Paul gets arrested and he gets sent from Jerusalem? He's sent to, uh, I'm, I'm blanking out because I'm pulling this out of my back pocket. 
But he's, he's sent and he's held in house arrest in Caesarea for a number of years before he makes his appeal to Rome and is sent to Caesar. That was where Pontius Pilate's headquarters were in Caesarea on the sea. But um, Passover was a time where there tended to be a lot of trouble for Rome. It could be uprisings from the Jewish people and political unrest. And so to ensure that there was no problems with this Jewish people and the Romans could quell any uprising tide, Pilate moved from his headquarters in Caesarea and came to Jerusalem for the time of Passover. And Pilate, as a man, like just a bit of background here, this guy could not afford to have any games and shenanigans happen in Jerusalem. In fact, Rome had told him already that he had two strikes against them, and if there was a third, he would be disposed of. The first time Pilate came to Jerusalem, he actually did this. He came with soldiers into the city and he brought with him like, like bus, like bus of the, of the Roman empire. And he paraded them into the city and he went up onto the temple mount with Roman soldiers, Gentile Roman soldiers and bus of the Roman empire, emperor. And what happened was a riot unleashed on the temple mount. And hundreds of Jews were killed. The Gospels actually make reference of this. Jesus talks about the blood of those who was mixed with the sacrifice on the Temple Mount. The blood of those who Pilate mixed with the blood of the sacrifice. I don't know if that rings a bell to you in the Gospel accounts. But this had happened. So, so that was strike one. And then, and then strike two was this, that to mend the fence between the Jewish people and himself, Pilate decided that he would appease them by taking on an infrastructure project, that he would build an aqueduct to supply more water for them. And uh, the lights are, we might have a brown out in here. He's build, this building is funky when it comes to electricity. And, and so what Roman did, what, what Pilate did was he decided that he would build this aqueduct and he would kind of make peace with the people. And so to do this, he's not going to go to Rome and ask for money to build his infrastructure project, you know. He's, he's the new man in town. So what he decides to do is this, is that he would divert money. This is brilliant. He would divert money from the treasury of the temple to fund his infrastructure plan. So naturally, you can imagine how that went over. The Jews were irate and they lost it again. And they appealed to Rome and Rome heard about these things and they warned Pilate. They said, one more strike, Pilate, and you're done. And so this is some of the background politically that's going on with regards to Jesus being brought to Pilate. He couldn't afford a third strike. And so with all that in the background hanging over his head, he had come to Jerusalem to ensure that Passover did not result in another uprising and more problems for him. And so we read here that early in the morning, Jesus was brought to the governor's headquarters. And he himself is handed over to be escorted into the headquarters of the Roman governor, but the Jews themselves would not enter the building. They would not enter Antonio's fortress. They would not enter the hall of judgment because it was the seat of Rome in Jerusalem and religiously they would be made unclean. They would not be able to participate in Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was right upon them as well. And so they waited outside. Now, isn't that incredible? Like when you think about that, the irony of that, it's insane. 
That here they've condemned an innocent man. They've handed over Jesus. They've had a trial in the middle of the night. He's been taking a, a bit of a beating here already. There's, there hasn't been, you know, legitimate witnesses to speak against him. And they've condemned him as, you know, guilty of a crime. It was a kangaroo court. They've plotted his murder, but they won't go into the governor's house. But they won't enter the hall of judgment lest they be, be, lest they be made unclean. Now, guys, that is religious hypocrisy. Like, that is like a great picture of religious hypocrisy, that that is always the danger of religion right there. Outward conformity without inner transformation. Like washing the outside of a cup and never bothering to clean the inside of the cup. And church, the Lord is not interested in outward conformity. The Lord is interested in inner transformation. You know, I was thinking about this as I thought about our church. You know, my heart for our church is that our church would not be a place where we put the emphasis on window dressing. We want to be people who have hearts after God. We want to be people who love Jesus. People who are being changed on the inside. And inner transformation always works its way to the outside. It, when, when the heart is changed, the transformation will happen on the outside. That's why I'm like, man, I never worry. I, I try to never worry about the outer cup. Let's deal with the heart. And what a tragedy that was taking place, handing Jesus over to be crucified while playing the religious part. And we got to always be on our guard, church. And asking the Lord, Lord, deal with my heart. Deal with my heart. So verse 29, we read this. So Pilate went outside to them. He leaves the building to go out and meet the Jews while Jesus is inside. He goes outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? So he's doing his part as the governor in the hall of judgment. What are the charges? What's the accusation against this man? And, and you know he was going to do, with just the background that I told you about, you know that he was going to do anything he could to stay off any mayhem to make sure Rome didn't catch wind of what was going on. And so verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In other words, Pilate, let's just be clear here. We're not here for a trial. We've already conducted our trial. We've already had one. This, there's no case to reopen here, Pilate. We've settled on his guilt. We're interested in this. Sentence him. Sentence him. No need for a trial. And so Pilate is annoyed by this. He's the, he's the governor. I think he's annoyed by this. And so verse 31, Pilate said to them, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. Now this is interesting. They say, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But with regards to Jewish law, I mean, like if you've read your Bible, you know the Old Testament that capital punishment for various things, was like part of Jewish law. So what are they talking about? We're not allowed to put anyone to death. That was the law God had given them, that, that certain sins were to be punished with capital punishment. 
But what had happened is this. Rome had taken away the right of the Jews to practice capital punishment. In fact, it had happened just a few years earlier in the year 30 AD. The Romans had taken away the right of Jewish capital punishment according to the law of the scripture. And in response to this, is, uh, the history on this is actually super fascinating because the rabbis freaked out. The teachers of the law lost it when this happened. In fact, they tore their clothes, they put on sackcloth, and they put ashes on their head. And history tells us that they went through the streets of Jerusalem and they cried out, God has failed us, the word of God has failed us. And they marched through the streets of Jerusalem and they did so because the word of God had prophesied. In G Genesis chapter 49 verse 10, it was prophesied this, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. And see, the basic foundation of any nation, any people having government over themselves is this, is that they have to be able to manage laws of justice. They have to be able to charge lawbreakers and deal with lawbreakers and make sure justice is followed. That's one of the jobs the scripture teaches us about government, to deal with those who are breaking the law. And Rome removed their rights. Rome removed their rights to deal with lawbreakers and they interpreted it as the scepter departing, it was, it was, they had lost their ability to rule their own people. And the tragedy of the whole thing was this, is that they expected the Messiah to be present before the scepter would depart. And the Messiah, or so they thought, was nowhere to be found. But the truth was the Messiah had appeared. Their right to capital punishment was not removed until Jesus was already on the scene. He was in Galilee preaching. Right in their midst, the rabbi of Galilee, they just hadn't recognized him. They're going through the streets of Jerusalem saying, the word of God has failed us. God's failed us. He's let us down. And meanwhile, the Messiah was right in their midst. And so John tells us that all of this happened to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken regarding the way he would die. Jesus had said he'd been declaring that he would be crucified. He'd been telling his disciples. We've seen it throughout John's gospel. Now, the Jewish practice of capital punishment was not crucifixion. It was to do what? To stone, right? That was how they performed capital punishment. And, and I actually pointed them out to you. I mean, it's been a long time that we've been in John's gospel. But throughout John's gospel, we saw three times where they tried to stone Jesus and he escaped their grasp. Three times. They've already tried to, to kill him, but Jesus said, no, that's not how it's going to go down. I'm, gonna be, I'm going to be crucified. Crucifixion was the Roman method of capital punishment. So once Pilate spoke to the Jews outside, he makes his way back inside to Antonio's fortress to speak with Jesus. And we get inside into this. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? It's interesting, you know, like 
Are you the king of the Jews? That's what Pilate asked him. And this is not exactly the way, uh, you know, a, the way a judge should go about handing out sent a sentence or condemning, condemning the accused. There's no, there's no witnesses present at this point. Pilate simply asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And legally, we understand that's not how a trial should go down. That's not how a sentence should be meted out. You, you, you need witnesses. Pilate, Pilate either had evidence against Jesus or he didn't. And so Jesus' answer is really asking, I think, Pilate to do this. Give me judge. No, Pilate, this isn't just. Let's have some justice if you're going to be the judge. Let's have some justice. Do you say this of me of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? See, Pilate didn't have any right. Like, I mean, he's a judge. He didn't have any right here to ask this leading question. So Jesus' answer his, is his objection to the line of questioning. And on top of that, on top of all of that, that Jesus was, was asking Pilate to clarify something for himself. Now, one of the amazing things about this story is that, that who's judge and who's on trial here is really not what you think with the first impression. Really, it's, it's Pilate. This, this was not Jesus on trial. Pilate was on trial. And, and so Jesus turns the question on him so that Pilate looks into his own heart. But look at what Pilate says in verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now, I get the sense that Pilate was probably, again, annoyed. Just like he was annoyed with the Jews on the outside, he was annoyed with Jesus probably inside here. He's looking, I'm not the one who brought you here. It's your own people outside. They're asking for me to sentence you to death. And I'm trying to get to the bottom of this, you know, looking, looking to help you. What have you done? Which is, again, crazy when you think about it, this line of questioning. Because, you know, I've never been arrested yet at this point in my life. But I imagine that, you know, the standard protocol, as far as my understanding goes, that when you arrest someone, you tell them why they're being arrested. You're being arrested because fill in the blank. But Pilate asked Jesus, he says, what have you done? He's asking him to tell him some crime that he's, he's committed. What, what's the crime? What have you done that has everyone riled up out there and wanting me to sentence you to death? And so verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So Jesus answers by speaking about his kingdom. And he tells Pilate that his kingdom is not like other kingdoms. That his kingdoms are not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says, if, if I wanted a kingdom like you Romans have, then I would have fighters. I would have soldiers. And I never would have been arrested because my servants would have fought to stop that from happening. And Jesus says, my kingdom, Pilate, does not belong to this world. I'm not interested in taking the throne from Rome. I'm not here to fight for the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. 
I'm not trying to carve out a little patch of land here in Palestine to call my own and to raise a flag because I haven't come to establish an earthly kingdom. Basically, he's saying this, Pilate, you don't need to be afraid of me. I'm not a threat to you. But Pilate, all he heard was the word kingdom. So verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Pilate says to him, so, so you, you are a king? And Jesus said, well, you've call, you call me a king. I didn't use that title. It's interesting in John's gospel, the, the title of king being appropriated to Jesus was not something that he puts on himself anywhere in John's gospel. Others put it on him. Jesus says, I didn't use that title. If I use that title, Pilate, you're going to misconstrue my words. If I, if I use that title, you're not going to understand, and the people outside are not going to understand. If I use the title king, you'll assume I'm talking about an earthly kingdom. If I say I'm a king, you'll, you'll think that I have political ambition. If I say that I'm a king, you'll think that I'm a political rebel. So I'm not going to tell you that I'm a king. You're the one who said I'm a king. You're the one who used that word. Now again, remember that in the eyes of man, Jesus is on trial. But the truth is that Pilate's on trial. Mankind was on trial. And Jesus said, and I call a witness to the table myself. Look again, for this purpose, he says, Verse 37, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. You know, it's like you asked if I was a king. I'll tell you why I came. I came to establish a kingdom, but my weapon, the only weapon I use is the truth. I use the truth. I bear witness to the truth. Whoever is interested in the truth, Jesus says, will listen to me. Well, here's Pilate. He's a judge. Judges should be interested in the truth. And it's like Jesus says, you're focusing on the words kingdom and, and king. What should matter to you because you're a judge, Pilate? What should matter to you? is the truth. And so I'll tell you, I'm here to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You know, when you think about our world, you have to believe that no matter where someone lives, no matter when they lived in history or in the future, that every person who wants to hear the voice of truth will hear God's voice. I believe that. That people who desire to hear the voice of God, that God is looking to speak to them. You know, sometimes we, we, we I think we mistakenly put a lot of emphasis, you know, on, on God choosing people and not choosing people. Jesus says this, everyone who wants to hear the truth listens to my voice. 
And you know, the truth is, a lot of people don't want to hear the truth. You know, the scripture says this, Psalm 29, I love Psalm 29, it says this, that the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. God is speaking for those that want to hear truth. And if they'll look to Jesus, they'll find truth. Verse 7 of, 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 of uh, Psalm 29 strikes me that the voice of the Lord flashes forth in flames of fire. It makes me think of Australia, church. People don't want to say it in this world. God is speaking. And a nation is being called to respond. And they can blame this and they can blame arsonists and they can blame climate change. God is speaking. Will they listen to the voice of the Lord that speaks forth and flashes the fire? When there's forest fires, we should look up. Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And what did Pilate say? That response that so, you know, we know, so what did he say? What is truth? Verse 38, what is truth? The question's like rung through the ages. You know, in our age, they say, well, truth is relative. There's your truth and there's my truth, which is totally nonsensical. It doesn't make sense. I would encourage you, yeah, what does that mean? And, and I would say, look, at, you can have an opinion on the truth. You can have a perspective on the truth. You can have a slice of the truth, but there's no such thing as your truth and my truth. In fact, the scriptures, Christians, followers of Jesus, we should not use that language. Jesus said this, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't have to say my truth, your truth. Just say yes and no. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. But in our culture, it's relative. They move in the goalposts all the time. We don't know what, you know. So we talk about, you know, and I've joked about this, fake news, true news. I don't know. I don't know what's going on anymore. What is truth? Pilate had truth standing right in front of him. Pilate had never been closer to the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. And if you want to know the truth about man, if you want to know the truth about God, then you look to Jesus. Jesus said, if you, if you want to know truth, I am the truth. I am the voice of truth. Everyone who wants to know truth looks to me. After he said this, it says that Pilate went back outside to the Jews. So this is in and out thing going on. Not the burgers, though. I like In-N-Out burgers. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, that's amazing. Pilate testified. I, don't, I know you guys have brought this guy to me, but I don't understand what the issue is. There's no guilt in this guy. Look at verse 39. Now, Pilate starts to make his mistakes. He said, but you have a custom that I should release for you one man at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, 
not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that they had been stirring up the crowd. While Pilate was inside dealing with Jesus, the chief priests and the elders of the people had been stirring them up to, to beg for Barabbas. And as we read this gospel account, like I just think the picture of Pilate becomes clearer and clearer. You know, Pilate was a man who wanted to keep everyone happy. He'd made a career out of it. He had risen from slave to governor because the men had skills at negotiating and keeping people happy. Twisting truth. Presenting your truth to people. Making people happy. And Jesus was without guilt. Pilate declared it, but he wanted to keep peace. Couldn't afford the third strike, so he tried to negotiate Jesus. Tried to negotiate with Jesus' release on account of the Passover. He's trying to get Jesus' release here, but look at, you know, it's a dangerous thing when you use Jesus as a negotiation tactic. You don't negotiate with the truth. Church, we don't negotiate on Jesus. That's fixed. Jesus is firm. Jesus is the truth, the way, the life, and the truth. We don't negotiate. But the crowd cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a, a robber or an insurrectionist. Guilty of insurrection. Guy had led rebellion and violence against the Roman government. He was a Jewish nationalist, a zealot. And it's crazy when you stop and think about this. This name means son of the father. Bar, son of Abbas, father. The son of the father. In fact, history says that his first name was Jesus. Jesus Bar Abbas. Jesus, the son of the father. Not Jesus the Christ, son of God. Jesus the Christ, son of, the Son of God, would be going to the cross, but, but Pilate, knowing he was innocent, thought he tried. That, that, and they asked for Barabbas. So Pilate decides to do this, as we're going to read in a minute. He thought, well, maybe if I punish Jesus, that'll keep this crowd happy, and then I can release him after that. And again, he, he knows Jesus was innocent. His, his thought process to me as I read this seems to be if I, if I punish Jesus, then that's going to please the crowd. Then I can let him go. That'll keep my conscience clean because I know this guy's innocent. So the crowd will be happy because Jesus got whooped. And I'll be happy because he's still alive and I can just negotiate my way through this. And we come to chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. It's hard to grasp that verse, actually. It's not really, like, clear to us what that means. Like, hard to comprehend what it meant to be flogged by the Romans. I would say these seven words of that verse are, like, were very clearly understood in John's day. Didn't need any more explanation. 
no need for further explaining. It's foreign to us. The victim would be stripped down to expose all the flesh. And then the soldiers would bring out this instrument that we know is called the cat of nine tails. It was nine leather straps. Embedded in the straps were bone, pieces of bone and pieces of metal. And they would begin to whip the victim. And the idea of the flogging was this. This was the idea of Roman flogging. There's a couple key things to what Romans were trying to accomplish when they would flog a man. The first was this. They would induce a confession. See, when men were flogged, they would begin to confess their sins. They would confess everything. At the end of a cat of nine tails, there's no secrets. Men spilled their guts. They made sins up to try and get the Romans to stop. The leather straps would be whipped against the bare skin and the pieces of bone and metal would embed in the flesh and then when that soldier took the cat of nine tails back to himself, it did more damage than the initial strike. The flesh would be torn. The flogging was not restricted to the back. Fleshly parts, legs, ribs, chest, Stomach, everything was fair game. Skin and flesh and blood vessels and muscle and sinew and tendon, it was all fair game. And more often than not, men lost their minds. They, they went mad or they died or they succumbed to the injuries that were inflicted upon them and they would confess, they would sing like a canary. But Jesus, just like a sheep who before her shears was silent, did not utter a word. Not a word. He spoke not a word, nothing to confess. There was nothing to confess. There was no sin to confess. And they flogged him and Jesus was silent because there was, not, there was, there was no sin. And it's hard to imagine the condition that Jesus was in by the time they were done with him. You know, the scripture tells us that his beard was pulled from his face. The scripture tells us that by the time they were done with him, he was marred beyond the likeness of any man. And I, you know, I was thinking like, why, Lord? Why the flogging? Like, why not just straight to the cross? Church, the flogging was proof that Jesus was, out with a, was without sin. The scripture says with each lash he purchased our healing. That by his stripes we are healed. 
And the Bible actually doesn't tell us how many lashes that Jesus received, but the Roman practice was the 40 minus 1, the 39 lashes. Roman practice was this, that 39 lashes and the goal of the soldier was this, that if he administered a 40th lash, the victim would die. Take them as close to death as possible and leave them alive. In fact, some claim that if a Roman soldier did not take his victim that far, he would receive the lashes himself. Because it was traumatic for a soldier to do such a thing. And so to ensure he did his job, he was told 39 lashes and the 40th better kill the man. And if it doesn't, you're next. Why? Son of God. Church, because of sin. Because of sin. There's nothing cheap about sin. There's nothing cheap about redemption. Nothing cheap about grace. Nothing cheap about the forgiveness that Jesus purchased for you and me. Sin cost Jesus everything. For the sake of love and the wages of sin, Jesus left his father's side. He took on the very nature of a servant. He clothed himself with human flesh and he gave himself for, for our sin to purchase our redemption to rescue us. Praise his name. Verse 2 says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. And they put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe. Reminds me of the garden. When the first Adam rebelled and sinned against the Lord, the ground was cursed. And the Lord said to him, By the sweat of your brow you'll eat your bread and the ground will produce for you thorns and thistles. And the thorns and thistles that were the fruit of man's sin and led to the sweat of his brow were, were woven into a crown and they were pressed into the brow of the Lord. Pierced by the very thing that was the product of our sin. He claimed a kingdom, so they, they took a purple robe. Purple the color of royalty, and they laid it upon him. And verse 3 says that they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. I thought about that. Hands that the Lord made. Hands that he made. Hands that he formed in a mother's womb. And men clenched them as fists and they struck him. They mocked him and they spat on him. Creation spitting upon its creator. 
Verse 4 tells us that Pilate again goes outside. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. No guilt. No, again, Pilate says it like we lashed him. He didn't confess any sin. But here's Pilate still trying to please everybody. And, you know, I think about Pilate. Pilate, one of the lessons about him is this, is that you will never find a way to please everybody. And if you try to please everybody, you know who will suffer in your life? Jesus. Jesus suffers when we try to please everybody. Verse 5 tells us about them bringing Jesus out. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. That's what I called this message because I love those words. Behold the man. The first man, Adam, was made in the image of God. The last Adam, that man came to restore the image of God in creation. Behold the man. Behold the man. This, this was not, I, you know, this was not what I imagined God had in mind when he made man in his image. Jesus marred beyond the likeness of any man. Though the Lord knew before the foundations of the earth would lay, were, were laid what it, would, what it would cost him, he, he did it and Pilate declares, Behold the man the man above all other men. What man could stand here and endure all this? Pilate's literally saying, here is the man. This guy's the man. This is a man. And Jesus did it. Dirt it all and was marred beyond recognition. And, and Pilate had to identify that it was him. So marred. But it wasn't enough for his enemies. Verse 6 says they, that when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to, him, to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Three times, Pilate declares, there's no guilt in this man. He's without sin, innocent, guiltless, blameless, faultless. This is the cost of sin. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Crazy, Pilate was fearful when he heard these words. Fear grabbed his heart. You know, as, as a Roman to suggest that, you know, Jesus claiming to be the son of God was blasphemy, that was like inconsequential. That, he could care less. That, would, that bugged the Jews, but that didn't, that didn't bother Pilate. But when he heard that, that Jesus had made himself to be the son of God, what it brought to mind for him as a Roman were the legendary 
tales of the offspring of gods who would come occasionally to earth and visit men. Romans had many myths about gods coming to earth. Do you remember in Acts chapter 14? Barnabas and Paul were in Lystra and they were preaching the gospel and Paul raised up a lame man and the crowd said, Zeus and Hermes have appeared among us. And, and they called Barnabas Zeus and they called Paul Hermes because Paul was the, the preacher in their midst. And, and Paul, and, and they actually said this, that, that the gods have come down and they've mingled themselves with human flesh. The Romans believed that could happen. And, and Paul and Barnabas had to run into the crowd and they, they tore their, their clothes and they said, we're men with a nature like yours and we've come to proclaim to you that you should turn to God. That you should turn to Jesus. That you should turn to the living God who's made the heaven and the earth. You know, some people actually claim, they, like go, they, they say that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. I'm like, man, you don't know the gospels. You're like blind. The claim that Jesus never said that he was the son of God. Such a, such a suggestion is totally misinformed. Those who witnessed Jesus' ministry, who saw the miracles he performed, the thing, and heard the things that he taught, this was the accusation they brought against him before Pilate. He said he's, he claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate was afraid. You remember that his wife had warned him she had dreams. She'd have nothing to do with that man. Don't have anything to do with that man. Verse 9. He entered his headquarters again. So back inside he goes and he said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it would have been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Pilate says, Where are you from? Who are you? What kind of person are have you come from the gods? Where are you from? But Jesus didn't answer. So Pilate says to him, won't you speak to me? Don't you know? I have the authority. I have authority to crucify you and I have the authority to let you live. I'm trying to help you here. Answer me. Where are you from? Who are you? I think that Jesus, if Jesus faced any temptation Before going to the cross on this particular day, this was probably the end of it right here. When Pat says, don't you know, I could release you. I have the authority. A temptation to get away from the cross. But Jesus says to him, you have, no you have no power over me unless God gave it to you. No one on earth can do anything unless God allows him to. And, and you have no power over me unless God had willed it. Your power is limited, Pilate. Which is interesting. He also says, your power is limited, so your guilt is limited. The one who's more guilty is the one who handed you over to me. He who delivered you to me is, has the greater sins, Caiaphas, the high priest who should have known better. And Pilate realized that he had compromised, that he was guilty, that Jesus was innocent, and he was guilty that he had innocent blood on his hands. Look at what verse 12 tells us. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement. In Aramaic, Gabatha, or as we say, Golgotha, or Calvary. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, that's 6 a.m., early in the morning. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Behold the man. And now he says, behold your king. Here's your king. There's royalty in this man. But the crowd had been growing in numbers. And verse 15 tells us that they had cried out, away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. I, Pilate's like, do you really want me to crucify your king? And Pilate's, you know, trapped between doing what's right and pleasing the people, trapped be between doing what's right and what was popular. You know, I think about Pilate. Pilate, Pilate sacrificed Jesus for his career. Don't sacrifice Jesus for a career. He lost his career, actually. Another year or two later, he, he had another blunder, and he was removed. And Pilate kind of like disappears somewhat in the pages of history. What they, what they claim is this, that he, that he died in basically anonymity. Nobody knows where he's buried. In fact, outside... This is very interesting that outside of the biblical record, there was actually no proof that Pontius Pilate ever existed until the last century. Critics of the Bible actually used to use Pontius Pilate as a means of attacking scripture. Did you know that? They would say, who is this fictitious character in the scriptures and the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion? There's, there's no historical records of this man Pilate and then in, in like, like 50 years ago, a little more than 50 years ago, in Caesarea, they were doing digging where Paul had been arrested, held in, held in house custody, and they found a stone. And on the stone, it's a big stone. There's a replica of it in Caesarea. When you go to Jerusalem, you stand in front of it and it's clearly engraved the name Pontius Pilate and some legal stuff with regards to Pontius Pilate. Unearthed. You know, it just goes to show you, the word of God always proves itself true. The critics of the Bible always lose. You know, nobody knows where Pontius Pilate's buried, but one day Pontius Pilate is going to be raised from the dead, church. And when he is raised from the dead, he will stand before King Jesus. And he will be judged. He will be judged, but, and he'll be found guilty, but you know, Jesus said here, 
You won't be guilty as Caiaphas. Caiaphas will be raised from the dead and he'll stand before me as judge too. They'll both be sentenced by Jesus. And so verse 16 just tells us this. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. You know, we just know this about the cross as we read all this. Like this whole thing from a human point of view, this trial, Pontius Pilate, the religious trial, the civil trial, the flogging, everything. It just seems like such a tragedy, such an injustice. But church, from the point of God, from the divine viewpoint, it was the fulfillment of prophecy. It was the will of God. It was divine justice against sin. It was redemption. It was redemption so that we could be purchased. The cross still lay ahead of him. But Jesus had proven, behold the man, the king. And like a sheep before a shears is silent, so he spoke not a word without sin. 